Now, friends, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 5 through 9, studying chiefly verse 9, as we continue our study in relationships. We have been thinking about how God calls Christians to live in light of his grace, the grace that we have received, the grace he describes in chapters 1, 2, and 3. How do we live in light of that? That's just chapters 4, 5, and 6. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, we are to imitate God and live a life of love. And how do we do that? Chapter 5, verse 18, we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need his help. We need the fullness of the Spirit. And so we've been considering, how does, what does this look like in our homes? What does it look like for a husband and wife to love one another and respect one another? What does it look like for a mom, dad? to live with their children and children with their parents. And last week, we began to look at what does it look like, as Paul says, for bond servants or bond slaves, slaves even. Uh, What does it look like for them to relate to their masters and here tonight, masters to slaves? We said last week, we deal with such a passage, not because those are our particular circumstances, but because we're committed to working through God's word. And Paul has much to say by way of counsel to people in difficult, hard circumstances, places they would rather not be, like slavery. If you want to know more about slavery, uh, consider listening to last week's sermon. But tonight we turn then to masters. Last week we said Jesus loves slaves, not slavery, but he loves them. He loves the lowest of the low in any society. He... He has designed his gospel to bear fruit in the hardest and most difficult circumstances of life. We saw that last week. And then we also saw by way of application that that Jesus cares about our work. It's not the same as a slave relationship, but you've hired yourself out perhaps to 40 hours a week. What does it mean to to labor for Jesus in that? Jesus cares about all of our work. Uh, All of our work, whatever it is, legitimate work serves Jesus, we said, and he rewards our labors. He's watching, he knows, he sees. We said all that last week. Tonight we turn then to the other side of that relationship, masters to slaves at verse 9. And what we're going to do is we're going to consider this passage, and we're going to consider it in some ways in light of all who find themselves in positions of responsibility and authority in employing others. Uh, So let me invite you then to consider, and we'll read verses 5 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. 
This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, be our teacher. Come, we pray, and help me as I speak and help us as we listen. Help us to hear your word. I pray that you would keep us all faithful to the truth of your word. I pray that you would cause us to turn neither to the right nor to the left. We pray that you would do good to our souls and that through this word you would help us do good to others for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you know the name Charles Spurgeon, one of the great English-speaking preachers of all time, a Baptist in London. He tells the story of a king, a carrot, a farmer, and a nobleman. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've grown or ever will grow in your kingdom. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the heart of the gardener. And so he said, wait, as the man turned to go, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so you can garden all of it. Well, the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing at the king's generosity. And a nobleman who was sitting in court overhearing this conversation thought to himself, my, well, if that's what the king gives a man who gives him a carrot, I mean, what would the king do for a man who gave him a great horse? And so the next day he arrives at the king's throne and he's leading this enormous, strong, beautiful black stallion. And he bows low and he says, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart. And he said, thank you. And he took the horse. And he dismissed the man. And the man, troubled and perplexed by this, turned to the king. And the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener gave me the carrot out of his love and respect. You were really giving yourself the horse. You see, the king already owned everything in that land, and the farmer, out of his gratefulness to the king, gave him the carrot, while the nobleman tried to barter with the king to get more. But you can't barter in Christianity with the God of all grace. Grace says you don't deserve anything, and yet I give you everything. Ephesians 1 to 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians says you have already in Jesus received everything God has ever intended for you to receive and it's every blessing that there is possibly known to man and to heaven 
You, you are the recipient. You are united to Jesus. Jesus owns it all, and it's all yours. And I know all of us right here today think to ourselves, I think I'm missing something. I don't feel like I've gotten it all. And of course, you, you haven't tasted all of it. Some of it yet awaits you in glory. You've had, you've had four tastes of it, but it is all yours in principle. You are a co-heir with Jesus of all things. And so I, I bring all that up to say this. When, when you get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, or a passage like this on, on masters and slaves, and we're going to make application to how, how you who employ anybody should handle that, you are not doing that to purchase anything from God. You, you, you don't have to buy your own kingdom. You've already been brought into the, the kingdom and been given the kingdom. It's yours because the king is yours and you are his. Uh, we, do this, we do this out of love and respect and gratefulness and thankfulness to the, the God we love. Not to gain, but because we have already been given. You've got to hear that. Because we're going to talk about how we live and what we should do. So... Uh, We're not giving God a horse so we can purchase a kingdom. The kingdom is ours. Uh, And and so in this passage, as we said, he's been talking to slaves and masters. And remember, by way of reminder, that that Rome had something like, the Roman uh, Empire had something like 60 million slaves. Basically, the nations they conquered, they enslaved the people. Uh, These slaves weren't all domestic Slaves, household slaves, or, or field workers, but they, they could have been teachers and doctors and uh, administrators. High, they could be in high places in government. Uh, it was the workforce of the nation, and yet they were owned by a Roman citizen in, in this situation. Uh, it was just a fact of life of the economic system of that day, and Paul writes to them. And he writes to them, and we have to remind ourselves, he writes to them not as if they were already in heaven where life is perfect and there is no injustice in the world. But he writes to them as broken people in a broken world who have to live sometimes for the rest of their lives with great inequalities and injustice. And he does so to help them. So by that... Uh, introduction that we want to consider this passage and for ourselves tonight. How then should we live? And I, I want to I break this into three parts. First, I want to I think through broad general principles. Then I want you to consider the very specific principles he speaks to the masters themselves. And then I want you to think about the good results that come from this. Okay, in the first place, the the general principles, and this is kind of by way of review of the whole passage going all the way back to husbands and wives and children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Basically, Paul's talking about the Christian ethic in our relationship. How do we live with one another? And he says basically there's, we might hear anyway, we might find ourselves in one of two categories of role in relationship towards others. And we see two different approaches about how we should relate when we find ourselves in those roles. Okay, so for instance, on the one hand, he said, there's this category of wife, child, bondservant. And in the other category, there's the category of husband or father or master. In the first category, I'm called to a position, he says, of submissiveness. And in the second category, I'm called to a position of authority and responsibility for others. Uh, 
So if on the one hand my circumstance puts me in the relational category of needing to be submissive to someone else, how then should I live? And here's his principle. Here's how you live. You submit to them as if you are submitting to Christ himself. This is why he says to wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. This is why he says to children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is why he said last week, slaves live in obedience to your masters as unto the Lord. But if you find yourself in the other category, if the circumstances of your life have placed you in marriage or as a father, or if you're the master of a a household employing others, and you're in that other relational category, in a position of authority and responsibility for others in this way, how then should I live? Here's his principle. You are to treat others as Christ has treated you. So a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And you're part of the church. He's loved you this way. He gave himself for you, for your glory. Do that, husbands, for your wives. Likewise, he, he, he you know, turns to the issue of children. A, a father is to nourish his children in the gospel and bring them up in the, the love and nourishment and nurture and instruction of the Lord and of the Lord's love and grace and truth and build them up in this. And so also, you are to do that. Why? Because God did that with you. You've been brought into the family and God is your father and he has nourished you and, and built you up in the love of Christ and the blessings of Christ and the, the word about Christ. And likewise here what he is saying then to masters is, master is to relate to his slaves and we might by extension say a boss should relate to his employees with the same kind of disposition that God has in relating to us. So you either, in other words, you either uh, relate to a person, in, if you're in one of these three circumstances, you either relate to one as if you are relating to Christ, or you relate to one as if you are relating like Christ has related to you. That this is the principle, this is the ethic of relationship. And so in the most significant relationships of your life, this is brilliant and genius on Paul's part, it's extremely helpful. With all the challenges of relationships, he doesn't just say, you know, here's ten principles to make you happy. Here's nine ways I can tell you if you just do all these nine things, it will improve your marriage. Here are the twelve things, the don't miss things you've got to do so your kids will turn out all right. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he nourishes you on sound doctrine. Don't let that word throw you. It just means teaching. It means life-giving, health-giving, teaching. He nourishes you on this. He asks you to ask, how has Jesus treated me? And how, as a Christian, am I responding to Jesus? That works itself out in all these relationships. A great example of this, an illustration of it, is in Philippians 2. If you just turn over a page in your Bible, probably, at Philippians 2... At at verse 5, Paul has just been saying, okay, this is the Philippian church, good church, a lot of good things happening. But there was tension. uh, There was some disagreement between people. Uh, Some people were evidently proud, conceited, and they needed to be humble and self-sacrificing to love one another. 
And so you see that in verses 3 and 4. Don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. You, You tell that to people when they're not doing that. So he wants them to live this way. Now, how does he convince them to live that way? How does he help them live that way? He, he places on them the Mount Everest of theology. Jesus, who he is and what he did for you. So he says, have this mind in yourself, verse 5, that is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, a bond servant, a bond slave. Same word. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Do you see what he said to you? Are you having trouble getting along? Is there a little pride, envy, and self-conceit, and disrespect? Do you struggle with that in your relationships? Paul says, I want you to look at Jesus, who had it all. And he had it going on. And he was the greatest of greats. And he became the lowest of the low for your soul's sake. In great humility. See see what he's done. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians. In marriage and in family life and in work relationships. He's saying remember Jesus. Remind yourself. Remind yourself. Of Jesus. And so a husband is to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. So husbands with your wives. Uh, be, be like a child. Remember what it's like when God the Father nourished you and nurtured you and he taught you the love of Jesus. And so parents, nurture your children in the love of Jesus. And, and as a master, he says to you, Jesus is just and generous as Lord. This is what he is. He's just and generous to us. So husbanding is learned. I know I'm maybe belaboring this. So husbanding is learned from how Jesus treats us as a husband to his bride. Fatherhood is learned from how God the Father treats us as a father to his children. And employing others is learned from how our Lord Jesus treats us as master of his servants, whom we are. So, so that's one category. If you have authority and responsibility for others, treat them like God has treated you. And if you're in the other category, you're called to submit or uh, you're called to submission, then respond to them like they are Christ and like you are responding to Christ. As God's beloved bride is to respond in submission and respect, so a wife to her husband. As God's beloved children are to respond in obedience and honor, so children respond to your parents. As God's beloved servants are to respond in honest and good works, so you who are employed. So you see what he's he's done? He has taken redemption as the paradigm of all of life and his relationships here. Your relationship to God in redemption is the pattern and paradigm of how you are to live as a Christian in the church, yes, but also at home and in your marriage and at work. That's the pattern. 
Either treat people how Jesus has treated you. Or respond to people in authority over you. In the way that you're responding to Jesus already. Because you know he loves you. And what that means, friends, rather pointedly is this. Our behavior shows how well or how poorly we understand and had been gripped by the gospel. It's revealing. It's a tell. How much has the gospel gripped your heart? You'll see it in your relationships. That's, that's the first big, that's the general principle. The second gets into the specifics of what he pointedly tells these masters to do. And by extension, I want to say, if, if we employ others, we should aim at these things. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I want to highlight four things there. Number one, he says, he says I want you to remember reward. Reward. Okay, this is the language of do the same to them. Now, what, what's, what's he speaking of there? You, you'll see some who will say, well, what he means is, Do to them as you would have them do to you. Do the same to them that you want them to do to you. Uh, So it's between the relationship of the master and the slave. Uh, Or he may be saying, do to them as they have done to you. I don't think that's it. Uh, but, But I think it's this. Do to them as Jesus promises to do to them. You do to them. As Jesus himself has promised to do to them. Why do I say that? Because at verse 8 he had just said, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whether you're slave or you're free, this you will receive back from the Lord. Whatever good you have done, you will receive that back from the Lord. The Lord is watching everything. He cares about it all. And he is both just and generous, we said last week. None of your work goes unnoticed. He's just. But he's also generous. He delights to reward faithfulness. One day you will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so God encourages us in our service with promises of reward. Reward which is all of grace. Again, don't misunderstand. Grace is enables our good behavior. It was grace that made us God's workmanship, chapter 2, verse 10. And having become God's workmanship, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then as we do those good works of whatever kind they are, God delights to come along as a father to his children and reward that which pleases him. And he's so generous to encourage us with the promise of reward. Not that we work to gain, but that he enables us to work for his glory and he graces his own grace. He gifts his own accomplishment in us and through us. Um, And so this ought to work itself out then. Uh, in that way that we relate. On the one hand, as slaves to masters, but then he turns and says, masters to your slaves. Do the same to them. As Jesus rewards them, so you do too. One morning, says a woman named Marion Gilbert, 
I opened the door to get the newspaper and was surprised to see a strange little dog with our paper in his mouth. Delighted with this unexpected delivery service, I fed him some treats. The following morning, I was horrified to see the same dog sitting in front of our door, wagging his tail with eight newspapers in front of him. And I spent the rest of that morning, she says, returning the papers to their owners. I know. I know. Don't misunderstand. People aren't dogs. Workers aren't. Children aren't. Servants aren't. Slaves aren't. We established that last week. They're people. God treats them with dignity. But don't you find that you yourself are much happier and far more productive when your work is rewarded instead of ignored? When you are praised instead of being dressed down? When you are complimented instead of being hyper-criticized? Well, Treat your employees generously as Jesus himself treats them. Reward them for good and honest work is what he says. Reward them, and then he says, and exercise restraint. And do not threaten them, he says. Give up threatening. And we know that in the Roman world, uh, it was rife with this. Because slaves, by law, were property. They were chattel. They were like cattle. They were movable personal property that you sold and bought And did whatever you wanted with. And yet God treats us with great dignity. And so whereas in that culture, in that Greco-Roman culture, a a master had rights of punishment over his own slaves, even death penalty and execution. They could severely beat their slaves. They could deal with them however they wanted to. The Apostle Paul says to Christians, don't ever do that. That is not how you treat people. Stop threatening. Don't be harsh. Don't wear them out with cruel words. Don't aim to gain their obedience by the negative, but by the positive. Gain it by love, not by wrath. The anger of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. So he's saying to us, if we find ourselves as boss, being the boss doesn't give us the right to treat employees with contempt, with an ill temper, with undue severity. No, he says, let goodness and gentleness and generosity, not meanness and fierceness, miserliness, be the way that you treat your employees. So exercise restraint. And I wanted to work this in, but I ran across some quotes by Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop, first Anglican bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s actually some counsel on parenting that I think applies likewise to this situation or both. So let me invite you to consider it. He says, most persons, even among grown-up people, are more easily led than they are to be pushed. There is that in all of our minds which rises up against compulsion. We straighten up our backs and we stiffen our necks at the very thought of a forced obedience. We are like young horses in the hand of a trainer. Handle them kindly, and they will learn quickly, and in time you may guide them with a piece of thread. But treat them and use them roughly and violently, and it will be many months before you get mastery over them, if at all. 
you can command, he says, threaten, punish, try to reason with them. But if love is missing in the way you treat them, then your labor will be all in vain. And he goes on to say that love is the one great secret of successful training. Anger and harshness may frighten them, but they will not persuade the child that you are right. And if he often sees you angry and harsh, you will soon cease to have his respect. So try hard, he says, to maintain your child's affections. It is a dangerous thing to make your children afraid of you. Anything is almost better than the coldness and bitterness that will come between you and your children because they are afraid of you. Fear puts an end to openness between the parent and the child. Fear leads to concealment. Fear sows the seed of hypocrisy and leads to many lies. And I think that's good counsel for parents, but likewise for employers. Then the third thing he says is remember. Reward, restrain, and remember. Remember, he says, verse 9, again, that their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, you are, remember, you are under the exact same authority they are. We're all under the same authority. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And he sees it all. And he knows it all. And you are accountable to him, he says. And recognize in the last place, recognize that he is impartial about all these things, friends. He is impartial. And the, the idea, the expression he uses is, it's the expression of lifting up of the face. Jesus does not lift up the face. He doesn't put his hand under the chin of the employee and lift up the face to see who it is. And then decide what determination he will make about the quality of the work. In other words, he doesn't show partiality this way. But partiality was written into the Greco-Roman law, of course. Masters were never treated like slaves, and slaves were never treated like masters. But the Apostle Paul says, let me just remind you, in the kingdom of Christ, it is not like that at all. You have the exact, identical, same master in heaven. And when he renders his judgment on the final day, it won't matter whether you are master or slave, because he doesn't show favoritism. You don't get a free pass because you're at the top of the food chain. You don't get treated easier because you own the company. And so, as one man said it, the master of men must remember that he is still the servant of God. And one day he and those over whom he was put in charge will all stand before God. And then who was over who won't be relevant at all. How we treated one another will be. And so this is a great reminder, friends, that the smallest, the littlest labor accomplished by what seems to be the lowest and most insignificant to our eyes person in society will be treated no differently by Jesus then the farthest reaching achievements and ambitions accomplished by the greatest monarch who has ever lived. Because there are no teacher's pets in heaven. He is impartial. And so there's, those are some of the specifics. Reward. Restrain yourself. Remember. And then uh, the good results. Good results. You, you want good results, don't you? After a preacher died, 
went to heaven. This is a joke. He noticed that a New York cab driver had been given a higher place than he had. I don't understand, he complained to St. Peter. I devoted my entire life to this congregation. Well, our policy is to reward results, explained St. Peter. Now, what happened, Reverend, when you preached the sermon? The minister admitted that, you know, some of the congregation fell asleep. Exactly, said Peter. And when people rode in this man's taxi, they not only stayed awake, but they prayed. (laughs) Results. We're interested in results. What are the results of this kind of teaching? We might ask and close with that question. What are the results of this kind of teaching? You know what one of the the results of this has been? That this has undermined slavery in every culture where Christianity has become dominant. Why? Why is it that in Christianity, slavery is undermined? We could talk about that at great length, but let me just highlight a few things right from this text. Number one, Christianity undermines the very system of slavery because of the doctrine of our common union with Christ under the lordship of one master, Jesus. We have, whether you're slave or master, we have one common king, and that's Jesus. And that undermines the whole practice of master-slave relationships. And also, secondly, The demand here of the Apostle Paul that masters show generosity and restraint and even justice toward their slaves, which was unheard of in that day. No justice, no generosity, no need for restraint. And Paul says, you show all those to people. That was unknown in the legal code of that day, but Paul says, do that. And that, where it is lived and embraced, began to undermine the system of slavery, but finally, and perhaps most importantly, you see here, as you also see in Colossians, in the parallel passage, and in the book of Philemon, that the doctrine of union with Jesus and our inclusion into one new family, you're united to Jesus and you're united to everyone else who is united to Jesus, and Jesus is your elder brother and you are brother and sister with everybody else who is united to Jesus, that idea began to undermine the very system of slavery because how could you Paul is saying how could you treat unkindly and unjustly your own dear brother or sister in the Lord oh no friends we sing oh holy night the stars are brightly shining Christmas cup it is the night of our dear savior's birth Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Do you remember the next or another stanza? Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. The slave is our brother, Paul says. So wherever Christianity has flourished, it has tended to undermine the kind of elitism among Christians. And it has undermined the kind of class divisions among Christians that, that is so visible in slave societies. And so we've discovered, friends, we've discovered as Christians that our master, 
became the lowest of the low. He became a slave on our behalf to serve even us through death in our place before he ever called us to serve him. And that turns everything upside down. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your son. We bless you for him. And we're so unlike him. And we barely know it because we are naked, poor, blind sinners. I pray that you would show us ourselves. You would forgive us, that you would humble us because you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.